Hi, and welcome to Innovate by Design. The idea behind this podcast is to tap into the experience of innovation leaders to support you in leading design and innovation efforts inside your organization. My name is Ingo Raut. In this first season, we focus on design thinking. Innovate by Design is supported by members of the DTX and Design and Business community, as well as the Center for Business Innovation at Chalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg, Sweden. With me today is Christy Zuber. Christy is the founder and former director of the innovation consultancy at Kaiser Permanente, a California-based healthcare provider. In the interview, we will talk about how Christy and her team got started with design thinking and service design even before these terms got invented, and how they managed to leverage internal and external support to drive their efforts since 2003. So I hope you are going to enjoy this interview with Christy Zuber. Hi, Christy. Thanks for taking the time, first of all. I think you were one of the first interviews we actually had for the study in 2011 or 12, I think. Oh, nice. It has been a long time since then. It has. I know you have been working on this since 2003. I don't know if design thinking was around 2003. It was not. It was not. I, it was not. If it was, it was in nooks and crannies that I hadn't quite found yet. So Okay. <laughs> so what was it called back then? Well, we were we were taught um, human-centered design is what they called it at the time. And we were kind of skilled up through IDEO, and that was what they were calling it. So everything was about human-centered design and trying to use design methods. And at the time, it was very much of a practitioner's field. So we had people that were really very deep and deeply skilled and deeply trained in design that were working with us. And it was one of the first times that they were really trying to teach um, non-designers, particularly in the service area and the service industry, how to apply design methods um, to solve problems. So it was, it was a really interesting time. I think we were learning as much from them as they were learning from us. So we were, we were each other's canvas. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. I mean, 2003, there wasn't much service design around. There was not. Most things were focused on product design, right? Right, right. And so it was a big leap. I think at the time, everyone was really um, concerned about, well, but we won't be developing products. We're not a product company. There, will, there, there might be a few kind of tangible items. You know, we had communication boards that we might work on or, you know, like small little items, but nothing that was significant. We weren't bringing products to market we were having an exchange of services from, you know, one group of people to another group of people. And it was very much about the interactions. And I think with the biggest learning curve in that was uh, trying to really understand, well, how do you demonstrate those interactions? And so that's what we really spent a lot of time trying to understand. And when we started trying to do things like storyboarding and um, kind of doing skits and enactments to try to act out what a new future might look like, that's where we really started seeing oh, we can, we can try to tweak this a little bit. It's not always the thing, but those things provided kind of launching points. So if we were trying to have communications differently, we might have a tool that a clinician would have in their hand that would help to prompt them how to have a conversation differently, for example. So we had some physical items that were part of it, and that helped, but we had to really understand how to practice um, doing something different that had a lot to do with interactions and experiences and communication and so forth. So it was, it was a really exciting time. It was 
a little bit intimidating, but really exciting. We didn't have a lot to look at to learn from, so it was all new uncharted territory. It sounds like a very big experiment. Uh, I'm not sure if that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's very fair to say that. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I would think I was really, I was really fortunate with is our at, at Kaiser at the time they didn't put a lot of pressure on us to make it work um, because there wasn't a lot going on. It was really the it was really couched as to see if it will work and see if this is something that actually fits in the culture of our organization. So you really had a support from management. Yeah. So how did that came to be? I mean, this is, sounds like an ideal condition to have. Okay, just go and try and explore. Yeah. So how did that came about? Yeah, well, I think for one, um, we were the organization was looking for something different. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's something really, I think, quite beautiful about being, um, being a little bit naive. Um, you know, the tricky part about not having a lot to look to and to learn from is, you know, you, you don't have anyone to pattern off of. You can't leverage off of other people's learnings and stand on the shoulders of, of giants. But um, the good part about it is you also don't have some sort of measuring stick that people are expecting that you achieve because nobody knew what was really going to come from it. So I think because of that, everybody was really open. Um, and we did it in a really small-scale way. So the way that we started was it was just a project with, with IDEO. Um, we had about probably three to four months of their time. There were four of them and there were four of us and we weren't a department. We weren't, you know, we were just borrowed resources. So they asked me to go find people internally that um, I could convince their managers to give them to me to work on this full time for four months. So that was really where I spent my time was running around trying to find the right people <laughs> and trying to convince their managers to please let me borrow them for four months. And it's, that's not easy. It's easy to find um, people, if they're, you know, if, if the fit's not that good and, you know, they don't have anything to do, it's much harder to find really good people. Uh -huh. But I got so lucky and I found really amazing people and they, their managers, what they, what sort of the sell was is, you know, no matter what, they're going to come back with some new skill sets and some new things that they can bring back into their department. And so the, the, the catch is actually after four months, um, People really liked it enough where it continued on for about another year and a half, and then we ended up forming a department. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> um, did you tell them that this will be full-time or was this part-time? I mean, what was the scale of the project? Yeah, it was full-time. So that was, that was kind of the deciding factor is if we're going to learn, really learn a new skill and a new approach and a new, what, what now I'd say as important as anything, a new mindset it's not something that you're going to get in periodic meetings. And so the whole idea was, you know, I need a group of people that are coming with me and with our IDEO counterparts into the field. We had three medical centers that we had signed up. And we also, our organization um, has about, I don't know, 60 to 70% of our workforce are, are in various labor unions. And most of them come together in what's called the Coalition of Unions. Mm -hmm. And so I knew if we're working with clinicians, a big majority of our clinicians are a part of this coalition of unions. And so I spoke with our coalition of unions and said, we're looking at this new thing. It's very much geared towards involvement of frontline staff. Okay. And I think this would be an excellent thing for us to learn because you guys come in this journey with us. And so they assigned someone from the coalition of unions who was representing the unions as a part-time person with us. Her, her name is Maureen Sheehan, and I still adore her to this day. And, you know, she was tough, but she was fair and she was savvy and she really helped us understand a, a 
a way to get these groups involved in a real partnership way. So it wasn't something that people were being forced or pushed into. It was really something that was very open and we were bringing people along in the journey with us. So that's really how we started it off. And we picked three medical centers that were in alignment with those kinds of values. And they, at each of those medical centers, um, would find a group of frontline staff and managers that when we would come to their medical center would partner with us and we would have one um, kind of three quarters time. Uh, it was usually a, some sort of a frontline staff nurse mm-hmm. and then a manager that was probably three quarters or part time. And each of those medical centers, we were there for about six weeks. So we had them that for that amount of time for six weeks. And then a lot of other sort of smaller part time people that had different roles, but they were all lined out. So we knew who it was that was a part of this this team when we show up and then we were full time and that's kind of how we made it work. So it was a really immersive experience. We didn't learn how to do it through, you know, showing up at one workshop or showing up at, uh, showing up at one meeting. We really learned it by, by doing it in the context of, of the work itself. Interesting. And, and who said the, the project topic? Um, we said it at more of a national level uh, and people were really supportive of it. it. We were looking at from the time a woman finds out she's pregnant until six weeks after she delivers. So it was this whole called a perinatal journey. And, well, we actually added the word journey on it. That was sort of part of the, the findings, but perinatal was what we were looking at. And um, it was really important to our organization because, actually, when you look at healthcare, women are the primary decision makers in healthcare, and we're in a healthcare organization. And so really understanding that experience from a woman's standpoint, the entire experience, not just when she shows up in a hospital, was really important. So it was one of the first times that we looked at it from an experiential journey. So that in and of itself was a real transformational shift for us because we always looked at it and, you know, when she comes into labor and delivery or when she's in her doctor's appointments or um, when she comes in for a follow-up visit or when she's in the breastfeeding clinic or, you know, it was these, um, these smaller little things is how we looked at it. We tried to optimize those individual moments as opposed to looking at it as an entire experience from from the beginning. So that was that was really transformative for us. That was the first time I think that we realized, which sounds so obvious, but you know, this is about her experience. Um, this isn't about our department and how we optimize our department. That's interesting. I just want to come back to the moment where you decided that this is going to be the challenge. Did you came up with that from your own experience? What got you to pick that specific challenge? Yeah, I mean, honestly, our team had less to do with it than the executive. So that was really more um, of an executive decision. So they had already gone through many rounds of conversations of trying to figure out what's the what's the opportunity area for us as an organization and as a business. Where do we need to be improving strategically what's important to us? And um, what do we think might be doable in this time frame? So um, it was it was kind of a gnarly challenge, but it was also one of those things where you know, it's not, it wasn't falling apart. It just, it could have been a lot better. Mm. And I think, I think that's important. Um, one of the things that I see a lot of organizations um, where they kind of fall apart in this journey is they start with something that, you know, the entire organization is looking at them and they have to get it right. Right. And this, this wasn't one of those things. This was just one of those things people knew it wasn't really working. They knew we should be doing something different but it didn't feel like the future of the organization was riding on this project. Mm-hmm. And I think that helped give us the flexibility to actually learn and experiment and bring things back. Because, you know, I look at a lot of this as 
if we're trying to learn an entirely new skill and mindset and behavior in our organization. And I think if you layer too much heaviness of the organization on top of you that you've got to get it right and, you know, we put so much money into this, you know, you're not likely to succeed because if you it's the expectations and the pressure is just too high. I mean, it, it reminds me of there's a lot of research around there where when you're incenting people, if you if you're providing high financial incentives, for example, mm. um, versus versus nothing or just praise, people actually perform worse when they have these higher expectations and higher incentive targets. They actually perform worse. And I think that happens a lot in organizations is you, you just are layered on with expectations and we've formed this department. We've spent X amount of money on making a great logo and a tagline and we're going all out and we've built this innovation center. And then suddenly the people that are supposed to do it are feel paralyzed. <laughs> <laughs> so basically the bottom line of this is like give your innovation teams enough space to explore and define themselves rather than stifling them with KPIs and deadlines. Yeah, I think in the beginning, absolutely. If you think about the methods, if you believe in the methods in general, that's really what the, the methods are about, right? They're about learning and exploring and then learning your way into something that works. Yes. But for some reason, we lose that connection when we're actually trying to build it as a capability in organizations. We skip all of that and we just go to something that feels very structured and, and beautiful and you know ready to go. And we haven't learned our way to that point. And I think every organization has to feel their way into that. So I would say give yourself a chance to feel what this feels like, to build up your skills, to build up your confidence, to get the organization to sort of experience it a little bit. And then, you know, worry about the big innovation center, worry about the big logos, worry, you know, worry about that stuff later. But first, ex you know, experience it, ex experiment and, and learn your way into that a little. So you had this two years of experimentation, you told me. And uh, in 2005, you became an official department and you right. also received a large grant allowing you to hire a number of people. So how did this round go like in terms of hiring people? <laughs> yeah. I think my journey has to be this is the strangest journey of probably anyone that's, that's done this. Um, so we had a you know little group of, there were three of us that were doing this for a couple of years and we were taking on all kinds of projects. And, um, and at, about in 2005, we had actually done enough where we had, We had been um, cited for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which is a, a big healthcare organization um, that out of Cambridge, and they cited some of the work that we had done as uh, as a best practice and something that other organizations should also do. So we had some some wins like that. We were um, we'd been written about in um, the New York Times. We'd been mentioned in Fast Company. So some of these things had happened. I mean, it was just such a new field at the time. So people were really interested in this. And so we had been, we had had enough kind of accolades, I think, that and enough real value that we could show of what we had done and what we had actually been able to implement. That we applied for this grant. We weren't at the time we weren't able to get operational dollars in our organization to grow, but we really felt like if we had um, more people and we could hire on some um, some trained designers to add on to those of us that you know now we call us design thinkers, if we could have a different a, an additional mix that we could even do more. Mm -hmm. um, so again, in, a, in the spirit of kind of prototyping it, we weren't getting anywhere just trying to get, you know, the funds to do it internally. So we applied for a grant. And what the grant allowed us to do is to hire on 10 people for two-year what's called duration positions. 
Mm-hmm. And um, that gave us a chance to actually take on a take on a couple projects for those two years. Um, in the context of those grants, the kind of the deal was whatever we learned would be packaged and could be spread to other organizations, so it wouldn't be held, you know, just within our company. That's that was the conditions of the grant. Interesting. So we did two really great projects. We packaged them up so others could um, spread them. And by the time we finished those two years, we were able to show what a team of this size and of this type of diverse skill sets and mindsets could do. And so then we were able to um, to get funds internally to be able to continue and form it as um, as a larger department. Interesting. So you got like external funding to craft your internal success story. Yes. That's very smart. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Small but scrappy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and was that also part of the Garfield Innovation Center that you launched in 2006? Was this part of this um, grant? Yeah, it wasn't part of the grant, but um, it was what it really was, was an extension of we, we had learned what it felt like to be able to work in a different way. And um, we had also another thing that was coming at the same time is we had um, a very large, the largest private implementation of an electronic medical record and several billion dollars to spend on that, as well as what we call a hospital retrofitting. We had to build and replace in, um, many hospitals within our system. And those are really large expenses, and those aren't things that you can really get wrong. Um, so you, you want to try to work out all the kinks beforehand. So the, the approach really kind of lined up. Mm-hmm. And uh, some other companies like McDonald's was one of them. We actually you know, learned a great deal from. They had an innovation center, and we learned a lot from the way that they were able to quickly configure any type of restaurant in the world within a matter of a few hours within their innovation center. And then they would bring in outside customers and they would bring in um, people that worked within their restaurants and they would run these simulations of new configurations, new technologies, new equipment um, to see how that would work out. Interesting. And so we learned a lot from that innovation center and said, wow, well, you know, that, I think that might be something that could help us work out how this works between workflow spaces and technology. And so that was really the pitch. And so we were able to um, to build the our what's called Sydney, our Garfield Healthcare Innovation Center. Um, that's right outside of Oakland Airport. So that's that helped to kind of continue to solidify what it is that we were doing. And it actually um, really became really important because it was a uh, a very physical, very tangible representation of working in a different way. So that helped, I think, to continue to propel what it was that we were doing. And then we knew we needed to focus more on technology. Our group was really, um, at this time, you know, experts in the methods, but we weren't a deep technological group. Mm-hmm. And that's where we found that, you know, we needed more skills internally and knowledge in the technology arena. And so we formed an innovation advanced technology group at that time as well. And so they also we would work with them to, to bring the methods and how we looked at technologies and, and prototyping and testing technologies. So it all started kind of coming together about that point. Interesting. Well, I, I, what I found very fascinating about your story is how you actually tap into existing strategies, resources, um, mm-hmm. visions to make yourself and the part of the organization that you were to build at that point in time an integral part of the operations. Yes. Yeah, I would actually say that's a, that's very, very intentional. Um, my my background is in operations. So I was a hospital administrator and a staff nurse in, in 
past roles. And I know when you're working in large organizations, if you're just if you're constantly in the place of trying to sell them on why they need to be behaving differently, it's a really tough sell. It's an easier sell if you can jump into an existing problem that the organization is struggling with and help to fix it or you know change the trajectory of it. And then they say, wow, how did you do that? And then you can begin to um, educate them about the methods and the mindsets and, and how you approached it differently. So I think that's a much, um, that's really a value-driven way of bringing people into um, thinking about design than trying to sell it as design. Unless you are one of those companies where I think product companies might be slightly different because, you know, design is, is a very much of sort of this, um, you can understand it in a refined way when things are going to market. In service organizations in particular, that's a, it's a very kind of complex thing for people to try to wrap their head around is how design fits into that. So instead, we would do something that actually added value, and then we would then step back and say, well, this is what it is that we did. This is how that was different. That's interesting. For me, it sounds very much or in line with um, Simon Sinek's work on Start With Why. Mm, exactly, exactly. So you craft a case for the why, and then you tell them about the what and the how, in a way. Exactly. That's exactly right. And we found that same way in how we have begun to use um, design methods in actually spreading and scaling work in the same way because design really does start with why when you're doing the work in that way because you're you're you know you're gathering and and you know bringing empathy into what it is that's actually happening so you're starting with the why when you're problem solving where other methods don't necessarily start with the why they're looking at the the solutions and that's fine for some I think challenges that's fine but for things we were doing the starting off with empathy and understanding and why really works. And, and we've used those same methods when we're trying to spread and scale some of the ideas that we've come up with, because when you're spreading and scaling, you still need to start with the why, because otherwise people think they're being forced and, and rolled over. So it's interesting how it's not just in the development and creation of ideas. It can also be in spreading and scaling ideas. Interesting. It just occurred to me that you told me a couple of times, and I also saw it in your notes that you collaborated with a lot of outside um a lot of individuals from the outside be it other companies mm -hmm. that you looked at for inspiration mm -hmm. so for example mcdonald's uh be it yeah. um some kind of um institute outside that provides you with a grant uh but also with media outlets such as fast company and you had this feature in harvard business review mm-hmm um, what is the role of that, and how did you make that work? Um, you know, some of it is intentional. Some of it was just luck. Um, you know, to be honest, we we really, when you're in large companies, uh, you know, for some of you that might be listening to this, this might resonate. Sometimes the work that you do within your own organization is um, is almost more interesting and and highly valued and sought after from the outside. There's something that I think for all of us, it's like the grass is greener on the other side. Um, if you can, within your own company, get accolades, get stories from other places that build up what it is that you're doing internally, I think it's really, really helpful. That's just a human dynamic that happens. You know, if I can say, oh, you know, we talked to some counterparts at, you know, Nordstrom or P&G or Citrix or Intuit, and they're also doing it in this way, 
Or if we can say, look, we did an interview with a reporter at Harvard Business Review or Fast Company, and our work is featured, then suddenly, you know, you're also cool on the inside, which is really important. <laughs> so, you know, I think you have to just understand how people, how people work because, you know, when you're, when you're working with everyone in your own organization on a day-to-day basis, it's really great to have some of that same kind of edginess and dare I say kind of like almost sex appeal that you get when you work with outside consultants. You know, people are usually pretty excited when you bring in, say you have another innovation or design firm that you're bringing in and they seem so fresh and their ideas are so exciting and their stories are, you know, so new. And when you're on the inside, it's really easy to lose that. And so I think it's really important to always bring that back in and always bring that freshness back in as an internal group. It, it, it never hurts to have a story from another organization. It never hurts to have publicity from a magazine or a newspaper or, you know, what have you that people think is really cool or, or a, you know, speaking spot at some conference. Those things will continue to reinforce that you're still edgy. You're still, you're still in the know. You're still out there learning and pushing the organization. Right. So do you have any advice for people who want to do this, who want to be featured in the Harvard Business Review or by Fast Company? Um, you know, I think, well, what differentiated us that I think that got us featured there is it's probably some of the same things that would get people featured now is there's plenty of organizations that have stories about how they gathered people together and how they led this really cool workshop and how everybody was really excited and, you know, look at our pretty pictures of the post-it notes. You know, there's a, those kinds of stories are really a dime a dozen now. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when you start to differentiate yourself, whether it's, you know, we've really integrated this into fundamentally how we're hiring people and how we're um, developing the core of how our leaders operate, or we're really, um, we can tell you stories of where this is added value and we can give you numbers and we can give you the case studies and, you know, to really show how it's impacted business. Those things start to differentiate you more um, than, than sort of the, the earlier stages of things. And I'm not saying the earlier stages aren't important, but I think there are more people that are able to have some um, some impact and some abilities in those earlier stages. But once you get into these other areas that differentiate you, you know, you've formed an, an ecosystem within your community and you're using these methods or, you know, it's become the core of how you're recruiting and hiring and evaluating people or, mm. or here's the business impact and here's how you can, you know, say how it has been used to actually show this business value. Then I think you have a smaller group of people to compete for those, you know, for those really cool spots in in articles or at conferences. So those things are pe I think that people are really looking for. So go, f go for good stories. Go for good stories. I mean, I think it's better to do a couple of things and, and really, really learn from it and really um, be able to tell a solid story around it than to do a million things that you started, but never really be able to tell what came from anything. So, and I think that's the risk when everything is run through a workshop and then you sort of lose touch about what happens to it within business operations. Um, you don't have those stories to be able to tell. So I'm a big proponent of really balancing your time between skilling up and building the capabilities of the organization, but also taking things and driving them all the way through into implementation so that you really know it, what you're doing is, is working and is relevant. And you might 
start to begin to tweak how it is that you're doing what you're doing because you realize where it's not exactly working in operation. So I think it's important to be able to straddle both of those things because they feed off of one another. Yeah, and it also seems that you're not jumping to the next thing. I mean, in the resources that you shared, there are a lot of presentations and press releases and other things where you can really see what you guys have been doing. You're also showing it to the outside and it seems like you're doing a great job capturing your learnings and communicating. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's always there's so many that we haven't captured, but I do think that there's a few key projects that we felt were easy to tell stories around that we have been able to capture. And it's amazing to me how many of some of these stories we, you know, we've done, you know, we might have done eight years, 10 years ago, but they still get told because they resonate with people and they're clear and people can understand them and repeat them. They're not too nuanced about, you know, healthcare, the organization, I mean, the the industry we're in, they're understandable enough where people can repeat them. And I think that really helps when you're in an organization and you're trying to do this is to have those, those just tip of your tongue stories that you can tell from other places to be able to demonstrate, you know, what others have done and have some kind of social proof that it, it actually is impactful and meaningful and it can work. I want to jump topics here uh, because one thing that uh, really caught my interest was you wrote in your notes that you, uh, in 2012, you initialized corporate innovation teams um, and that were called design and innovation groups. And you also wrote that you solidified uh, one methodology and approach for organization. Can you tell me what you meant by that? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, oddly enough, as we were kind of trotting through all of this and we had, you know, the Garfield Center opened up and um, and my colleague, Jennifer Lieberman, is leading that. And then we have our Innovation Advanced Technology Group and a woman named Naomi Freed, and later on, Faith Ahai, um was leading that. And when we were going through all of this, we were, you know, we'd all kind of, uh, you know, help skill up people in various things. And, you know, we'd meet together and, you know, we'd kind of toss things back and forth. But what started happening is we started just deviating a little bit and using slightly different terminology for some of the same things. Mm-hmm. And so over over the years, you know, we started kind of having some of our own images when we would make presentations because we're all different departments and we all actually reported into different areas of the organization. We weren't we weren't all rolling up into the same area. And so over time, you know, as the groups that you work for ask for things, you know, something gets developed and so word changes or an image changes or how you talk about the methodology has sort of evolved. And what we realized at this point is we'd evolved enough where it was making it difficult for the people in our organization to know what was going on. And we were kind of unknowingly leaving it up to them to reconcile what we were talking about. (laughs) And that, you know, when we said, um, you know, prototype in the field and our IT group would say cross the O gap, which is what they call the operations gap. We were talking about the same point in time, but how in the world would they ever know that? Um, so we finally realized this was this was happening, and so we started saying, "Well, we need to come together and and do this as as you know as something that's very consistent." And I think that's what's different kind of in our evolution, which sounds probably a little bit strange now, but you know it was our development because of I think the time point in which we started was much more of an organic development hmm. of doing this versus you know a CEO or some senior leader went to a conference and said. I saw this image, I saw these, you know, this approach and this methodology, and this is what we're going to do. I'm putting together a group of people and we're going to, 
you know, put together our images, what we call it, and then it kind of goes from top down. So I think that's one way of doing it, but that's just not how it really evolved within our organization. It was much, it was at a much smaller scale and then, and then kind of continued more organically. So it was not a recipe. Right, exactly. So we realized at that point, oh, we need to start pulling this together a little bit more and have something that's consistent because we were getting more and more into building capabilities and you can't really build capabilities well in people if they're spending their mental energy trying to reconcile different terms and different <laughs> images. So <laughs> so we kind of pulled ourselves together a little bit at that point. For me, it's interesting that this need surfaced almost nine years after you started because you were yeah. like doing a lot of projects with different parts of the organization. You had a lot of media coverage and like what led you to this point? What did led you to this realization? Well, it was really because we were being asked more and more to train and we didn't develop as a training group. We developed as a group of doers. And so it's a little bit like if you think about companies that might hire outside firms to come in and tackle a project effort for them, you're not going to make all those different consulting companies reconcile their methodologies because that's really not what you're doing. You're, you're bringing them in to tackle a challenge. And so we would be brought in to tackle a challenge. And so what we called things was somewhat irrelevant. Um, but then what started happening is we, because people really appreciated and saw the value in what we were all doing, they, we were all being asked more and more to, you know, come talk at this um, at this internal, you know, all hands event for, for a large department and share what it is that you're doing or, you know, come to this large forum or uh, can you train our department? And so those things started coming up more and more because people wanted to be able to, to um, tackle, to reframe challenges and tackle them in the same ways that we were. So we started just inadvertently getting more into building up capabilities. So that wasn't the initial intent. So as you start trying to build capabilities, then that's when we ran into, well, we're, we're doing this slightly differently. We're talking about it differently. The core is the same, and we all know what we're talking about, and our brains are automatically translating it. But for new learners, they aren't, and it's, it's not a good use of their time to try to, to try to translate that. So really, that's why, because we started off as, as you know, problem tacklers, <laughs> and, then we started, and then we started getting more into building capabilities. So this pull by the company basically led to this demand on you to formalize yourself and um, to become a little bit more consistent in, in the way you communicate. Um, but yes. also in this, as far as I understood, in this request to educate and build a program to scale throughout the company. You, you mentioned the Innovation Catalyst program, right? That yeah. began in 2014. Yeah, so our Innovation Catalyst program um, really was focused on people who, for us, we have um, improvement advisors. And I don't know if other organizations have something similar. So they're usually people for our organization that um, have become very skilled and sometimes experts in Lean and Six Sigma and things like that. And they use those to help to improve all sorts of things that are going on across the organization. And highly skilled people. And Many of them were saying, well, we want to bring more of this human-centered design or design thinking into what we're doing because we feel like there are components of how we're addressing challenges that are missing. And the techniques and the tools that they had basically in their tool belt were, were, were solid for more technical challenges where you were improving upon or bringing in a best practice. And so those kind of technical challenges that have an answer, those kinds of tools were, were good for. I mean, it, not that the challenges they were solving were easy. They weren't easy, 
But if you worked at it enough, if you gathered enough data, you could typically figure out at least, you know, where it is that you needed to go. And they were being given things that were more, um, more complex kinds of challenges that didn't necessarily have an answer, you know, what we would call more wicked problems. Mm-hmm. And so their tool set fell a little short. And so they started asking more and more for us to, you know, can we, can we do some of this with them and skill them up? So this innovation catalyst program, we've been thinking about it a lot of, well, can we do something that's beyond just a workshop? Because our, our department really wasn't staffed to, to skill up. You know, we have about 200,000 people in our organization. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't really staffed to do that. But some of these people were self-selecting that were really great with improvement methods of lean and six segments and so forth. And they were saying, please, we want to be you know, more highly skilled in what it is that you do, not just attend one of your half day, one day or two day trainings. Mm-hmm. So at that same point in time, another organization called the Center for Care Innovation had approached us and said, you know, we're interested in working with um, these underserved communities and the, the medical facilities that are, are located there and serve them to help to skill them up in innovation. And we think the things that you guys are doing are really interesting. Can we partner? So we partnered with them. So it was the Center for Care Innovations, our innovation consultancy group, and um, Gravity Tank, who's also an innovation design firm. The three of us partnered together and formed this innovation catalyst program where we do, we help to build their skills. We help to develop them as a community and give them tools to communicate as a community. We have, you know, virtual check-ins. We have coaching that lasts for, you know, nine months. So this is what the Innovation Catalyst Program became, and it actually ended up getting um, a design award. So um, that was an exciting thing. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay. I, mm-hmm. I don't want to get into more detail there because if I would do, I think we would spend another hour talking. That's right. So maybe we can <laughs> come back to this later. Um, so this was 2014. So what happened like after the Catalyst Program? Yeah, so... So that, that's still continuing on. Um, one of the, the big things that happened for us is one of our largest regions um, started working. Uh, they had many, many clinics that they needed to build. And we had, we had, we'd had moderate success, I would say, um, getting people at a really senior leadership level to get involved in this. I think our organization was more, almost, this was almost being led from the middle, quite honestly. And a woman in our, uh, one of our senior vice presidents in one of our largest regions was responsible for all of our capital planning and, and things like that. And she had, uh, had approached us and said, you know, we're, we're tackling this new thing and I have a feeling that we shouldn't be looking at it just of all these clinics that we need to build. I think we need to look at it fundamentally differently. You know, do you guys have any ideas for us? So we ended up partnering with them and doing kind of a skill building series for the executives and the physicians that were involved in it and did some kind of foundational ethnography for them in an effort that's called um, reimagining ambulatory design. And that was actually something that was just recently featured in Fast Company that our CEO was talking about. So that to us was a, a big moment of seeing it hit and, and be able to be articulated where it was really the first time that our leaders at that level, we're using the words design and how we approach solving problems. Because like I said, it wasn't about design becoming sort of the thing. It was about using it to, to tackle these various kinds of issues. So to see him in a very articulate way being interviewed in Fast Company about the value of design and user experience and how we reimagine what the future of 
of ambulatory care could be, and that it wasn't just about building the buildings. It was about trying to be, um, to bring things into the context of people's lives and that they shouldn't always be coming to us. And what does that mean? And what does that mean about the partnerships you form in the community and all sorts of different things? But that was, that was kind of a, a nodal moment for us to see that, to see that shift happen. Great. So it seems like design thinking or design or user-centered design, what are you calling it, by the way, right now? Um, well, we're in, a, we're in a point where we're working through that, actually. So, you know, we don't know if we're just going to call it something like Design KP, which KP is the, is the, the initials for our organization, Kaiser Permanente, or if we're going to call it Design Thinking. We're really sort of in, that, in a phase right now of trying to figure out how do we want to brand it, how do we want to um, discuss the methods, how do we want to talk about it in the context of strategy, in a different um, scalable way for our overall organization. And we're also building it into the fundamental way that we do improvement training for our improvement advisors. So we're going through a new kind of transition ourselves. So maybe if you interview me in, in, in a year, I can, I can tell you what came from that. <laughs> I would love to. It sounds super interesting. And like design is <laughs> yeah. really an integrative part of your organization by now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're trying to see as we move forward in the future, how can we still maintain some of the um, almost these kind of SWAT teams that can come in that have a, a really deep, deep um, skill and design to be able to address, reframe, and tackle challenges, um, as well as have it as something that people um, have uh, some kind of just, you know, foundational understanding that they can interweave into the things that they're already responsible for. So I don't think we're trying to make everybody a deeply skilled master in design and innovation, um, but we want to be able to give people the tools that they need to solve the things that they're being asked to solve. Chrissy, given the amazing journey that you had, I wonder what is your recommendation to somebody that's just starting out? Enjoy the journey and you know, you and I were talking about, you know, find people in this journey that you're taking that are kind of your comrades or, you know, your your sole partners in this because it's just as important that you're refueling yourself and you're still having a good time with this and you feel like you're growing and and learning and yeah, having a good time with it. It's, you know, this is such a wonderful way to be able to look at the world and approach challenges and being inside of organizations, sometimes that really overrides and clouds over um, the uniqueness and the wonderful nature of being able to work in a different way. And, and it's important that we work through what we need to in our organizations, but I would just ask that people, you know, find others that give them energy, find people that can help to support you and, um, and try to enjoy the journey. Great. So is there anybody you would like to thank at the end of this podcast? Mm, I would say I would like to thank um, my innovation consultancy team. Um, I have, I have just fallen in love with these people. They're, they're my friends. They're my comrades. They inspire me and I'm so grateful for them and for the people like Marilyn Chow and others of the senior leaders in our organization that started really early on and gave us the chance to do this. So I'm very grateful for them and for all the different um, people that have helped to, to build us up and, and skill us along the way and supported us. So I'm, I'm super grateful. Thank you. So I'm very grateful yeah. for you taking your time. And although you're very busy with your PhD and working at Kaiser to share your insights and knowledge, I think this uh, interview will be helpful to a lot of people. I hope so. So thank you very much. Thanks, Ingo. Thank you for listening to episode number four. 
As always, you can find show notes as well as additional resources on our webpage, www.innovatebydesign.net slash episode 4. In case you like this episode, feel free to follow us on iTunes, Facebook, or Twitter. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and comments.